Good afternoon and welcome to the 201st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we continue the discussion of COVID-19 vaccines and vaccination with Tara Haley and Maya Goldenberg. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 13th, 2021, there are 1,972,758 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 22,987,370 cases in the United States. And as of today, there are reported 383,113 deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. That's up from 378,849 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. This is the obituary of Frances Joan Merrill, nay, Kennelly. And she was born January 20th, 1933. This appeared in the Baltimore Sun, January 3rd. Frances Joan Merrill died January 1st. She was born in Baltimore to John and Helen Keneally. She was a graduate of the Institute of Notre Dame. Joan met her husband, Jack W. Merrill, in Ocean City, and they married in 1954. They lived in Hagerstown, Baltimore, before settling in Cockeysville to raise their three children, Tom, Steve, and Susan. Joan worked as a legal secretary at Covehi and Boozer, where she was in charge of real estate settlements. After her children were grown, she went back to school and graduated from Towson University, summa cum laude, with a bachelor's degree in history in 1988. Joan loved listening to Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and Elvis records, watching the birds in her backyard, riding motorcycles with her husband and doting on her Yorkie, Sammy. She was an avid reader of everything from history to mysteries. Especially enjoyed spending time with her brothers, Donald, and Bobby and brother-in-law Eddie and her sister Eileen and sisters-in-law Joan and Carolyn, the aunties. She was a loyal friend and confidant to many. Committed volunteer at Baltimore soup, soup kitchens and food pantries, Joan also enjoyed collecting toys for needy children in her church. She was incredibly proud to be 100% Irish and loved to tell her children and grandchildren about Ireland and her family. Joan was a supportive and loving mother and devoted Nana who cherished the time she had with each of her grandchildren and never missed a pause for celebration and joy. Joan is predeceased by her husband, Jack, and son, Thomas W. Merrill. She's survived by her son, Stephen W. Merrill, and wife, Betsy N. Merrill, and daughter, Susan L. Merrill, and husband, Tom W. Fanouf, and her grandchildren, Max, Esme, Ted, 
and Amelia, as well as her nieces and nephew. This obituary was highlighted recently on the Faces of COVID Twitter account. If you haven't been following Faces of COVID, uh, run by Alex J. Goldstein, who was a guest on COVID calls, uh, I encourage you to check it out. Faces of COVID is a real resource to keep in touch with the lives that are being lost every day from COVID-19. Okay, we're going to turn to the conversation now. I'm really excited to welcome my guests. So let me introduce them to you. Maya Goldenberg is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Guelph in Canada. She works in philosophy of medicine and has a new book on vaccine hesitancy coming out in March. Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise, and the War on Science, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. My second guest is Tara Haley. She's a freelance science journalist and photojournalist who serves as the AHCJ core topic leader for medical studies. She particularly specializes in reporting on vaccines, pediatrics, maternal health, obesity, nutrition, mental health, and medical research in general. And she regularly speaks on vaccine hesitancy. Her work has appeared in Elemental, Scientific American, The New York Times, Forbes, Politico, Slate, Nova, Wired, and Science. And she writes and covers medical conferences regularly for Medscape and MD Edge. She co-authored an evidence-based parenting book called The Informed Parent and authored Vaccination Investigation, The History and Science of Vaccines, along with a dozen children's science books. Let me welcome Tara Haley and Maya Goldenberg to COVID Calls. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is, is looking like there today. Maya, can I start with you, please? Sure. Um, you're reaching me in Toronto. Uh, this is a COVID hotspot for Canada, although what we call a hotspot is probably not so hot by uh, American standards. So our hospitals are at capacity. Um, our um, schools have been t turned online uh, j just starting now in, in January. So uh, there's, uh, you know, a lot of chaos around that. Um, and uh, there is inadequate um, coverage for essential workers who are really bearing the brunt. They are not being kept safe. We were hoping to bring in sick leave and things that might protect uh, essential workers uh, usually people uh, living in racialized communities, and uh, we do not have that yet. What's the situation on your campus? Uh, my campus has been largely online uh, since March of uh, 2020. So whereas the uh, children in school have pivoted from online to, uh, to uh, in-person, uh, universities are for the most part online. I haven't even been on my campus since March. Is that right? Wow. Right, teaching online, everything. That's an adjustment um, for all teachers. You're a humanities instructor. And if you're yeah. like me, you value that time in the classroom to really get to know students in a more informal setting somehow and get them comfortable with big ideas and challenging concepts. Have you adapted to the online space in that regard? Uh, we're all doing our best. I, I think uh, students are showing a lot of resilience, but it's difficult. Uh, the conversational, as you know, the conversation is really important in humanities. Um, teaching and, and learning um, something that is, a, you know, something like a recorded lecture really doesn't cover that very well. So, you know, I feel for the students. It's hard for the professors, but I really feel for the students. 
Tara, let me bring you in. Same question. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there today? I am in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the heart of Texas, uh, deep in the heart of Texas. Um, and the heart's not doing so well. <laughs> the test positivity rate in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, or in the state, is somewhere around uh, 18%, but it's actually closer to 25% in the county that I'm in. Um, I wasn't able to find out where our hospital ICU bed capacity was, but last available statistic was the end of December, and it was at 99%. Um, so, and we're still increasing, and I expect that to continue uh, for a variety of reasons. It's, it's increasing across the country, but my kids are still in virtual school, and husband and I are still locked up at home, as we have been since March. You've been doing your reporting um, entirely from from there, from that room that we're seeing, probably, Tara? Well, this room, and, and mostly from the living room next to where all my wine usually sits. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm not a journalist, so I only understand it sort of secondhand, but I know that sort of developing trust with sources and, and the experience of going to a site to interview people and the atmospherics of being on the ground when you do a story is so important to journalists. I, I'm not asking you to give up all your trade secrets, but how have you coped with that? Well, in my case, it, it wasn't a big difference. I already worked predominantly from home um, or from local coffee shops. The, the, the biggest adjustment for me was having to work in my house with screaming kids as opposed to going out to the coffee shop where I usually work. But I've because I most of my work has been, if I'm covering a conference, I'm on site at the conference, but all conferences are virtual now. So that's been a little bit more challenging to cover. But all the other stuff that I cover, I have usually covered from home anyway. Um, if I were doing more local journalism, I might be going places, pardon me, in person. But because I'm doing mostly national journalism and I'm covering medical research, I'm usually calling people all across the country or even all across the world from my living room anyway. So it, it didn't really change that much for me, except in terms of the conferences and the uh, the distraction level around me. Yeah, I hear you. Well, we have a lot of topics to get to. I want to start with the issue of vaccine hesitancy, and I want to talk a little bit about public opinion um, in that regard. Uh, there's a story that appeared in National Public Radio middle of December, December 15th. I'm just going to read one paragraph from it and, and get your reaction as a way to launch us. Um, it's talking about some polling that was done from the summer and then into December by the Kaiser Family Foundation. I'm quoting the story here. It said about 71% of respondents to the late November and early December survey said they would get a vaccine. This is in the U.S. up from 63% in the August-September poll, the Kaiser Family Foundation says the increase was evident across all racial and ethnic groups surveyed, as well as both Democrats and Republicans. Of course, it goes on, since the previous poll, there have been important advances in the development of a vaccine for COVID-19, which has cost more than 300,000 lives in the U.S. Um, I've read this story, and as many as I can get in front of my eyes um, about this issue of hesitancy and these numbers, I don't know what to make of those numbers. And I, I guess I want to start with that. Maybe Tara, I'll ask you first. Um, should I be horrified that 29% of Americans don't feel confident taking a vaccine or enthusiastic that 71% do want to? Or should I be wondering if the poll's out of date because we're already in January? I want to use this as a way into your thinking about this. Problem. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, you shouldn't put too much, you shouldn't be concerned at all, regardless of what it said. Even, even if, if, if it were dropping considerably, I think you'd be concerned about that because I want to know why it's dropping. But that survey is saying and doing exactly what I would expect. When we were asking people in the summertime, 
there were a lot of polls that were suggesting that only, you know, two thirds of adults, for example, would be willing to take COVID vaccine. But those were not very sensitive questions they were asking. The, the, the tools that they were using to measure that, you can't really just go up to someone and say, well, what's the likelihood you're going to get the COVID vaccine? Well, I, I don't know what the likelihood is I am if I can't see the data and know how effective and safe it is. So those were essentially meaningless um, to anyone other than researchers that were collecting long-term data. So for researchers, it's useful because they're looking at this over the long haul and they know the limitations of the data. But in terms of the general public, those not only aren't helpful, I think they can actually be harmful because they give an incorrect perception of reality. Uh, they imply that there's lots of other people who are not going to get the vaccine, and that's going to influence their own decision about whether they feel comfortable getting the vaccine, even if it's not a conscious influence. Um, I do think it's great that we see the increase, and I expect to continue seeing that increase as we simply, as we see, you know, not as we don't see adverse events occurring that are scary, as we see drops in areas that get vaccinated, as we see more people saying, I got vaccinated, and you should too. Um, which a lot of people are doing. People are excited about getting vaccinated. They're sharing it on their social media. I shared it on mine. I stayed up until two in the morning and made a little shirt for myself that said, hit me with your best shot because I was so excited about it. And I think you're going to see that continue to increase because in general, the public at large is very receptive to vaccines as a public health measure that reduces disease. The, the amount of Vaccine refusal is a very, very, very tiny number, even when it's loud from those people. And the amount of hesitancy that's out there is what I think is a natural, healthy number that you would expect from people who are doing what we've always told them to do, which is think about what's putting in your body and look at the benefits and look at the risks and ask questions. I mean, that's, that's the healthy thing to do for any kind of medical intervention. Maya, let me bring you in with the same question and the same same data, that 10 or almost 10 point jump from September to, to December. What do you make of that? Um, it, it suggests that things are actually working in a going in a good direction because uh, in September, it was a much more abstract question. We to, to say, would you get a vaccine that doesn't exist yet? Uh, what didn't is not a very meaningful question. If mm. anything, it prompts people to answer based on prior thinking and allegiances rather than what they intend to do. So you ask someone back in September, uh, do you plan to get the COVID vaccine? They may say something, they may think to them something like, well, I'm not one of those anti-vaxxers and therefore feel compelled uh, to say yes, even though they might enter with legitimate skepticism and want to know a little bit more. So it doesn't tell us very much. Um, that's that's just a feature of polls are like that, this, this sort of tendency to answer based on um, based on certain allegiances and how you want to be uh, perceived by the surveyor rather than what you actually think or what you tend to do. Now we're getting questions. It's a more it's a more concrete question because we actually have not a lot of data about it, but some of it. And it is quickly um, getting folded into the discussions about COVID as well as being normalized by these kinds of you know, healthcare workers and people like Tara putting uh, public figures, putting the selfies up of them getting vaccinated. That we know this from research into pediatric vaccines is the best way to get people to vaccinate is to normalize the practice. And yes, the fact that we're not seeing major adverse events is um, going to make people feel more comfortable with the decision. Maya, let me stay with you because I'm interested in maybe pockets of population which could have hesitancy even as we go into the new into the new year 
Talk a little bit, if you would, about people in the healthcare sector um, in that regard. Uh, I'd like to know sort of, because there have been some stories about this, and I think they're usually meant to be kind of shocking stories, like those on the front lines are refusing the vaccine, which I, I'm afraid has two impacts. One is it either causes people to lose confidence in the professionalism of the healthcare sector, even though they're interviewing one or two nurses seemingly, um, or there's that sense, well, maybe they know something I don't know. Both of those are dangerous, I think, in science communication, or they, they at least they're worthy of more scrutiny. What, what, what do you know about that? Well, I've been watching that story too. It's pretty, it's new now that we're, um, the countries that actually have access to the vaccines are prioritizing frontline healthcare workers. And the story is that we're hearing pushback from some healthcare workers. So I've seen, um, I've seen the Kaiser Foundation uh, poll that you mentioned uh, discussed that, that there was some pushback from health workers. I've seen Canadian and European um, data saying saying that too. So what do we know about it? Well, uh, first of all, it is only surprising to people that think that vaccine hesitancy stems from scientific misunderstanding or some kind of science denialism. And that's something I work, that's an idea that is very pervasive, that it must be that people don't understand about vaccines. If they did understand vaccines, then surely they would want to be vaccinated. And because of that, that's why most of our outreach and communications about vaccines tend to focus on um, fact-driven um, communications and debunking myths too. So in my own research, I looked into that and I did not, and what my finding was that this is not a misinformation problem. Surely misinformation is part of it, but uh, vaccine hesitancy stems from a broader mistrust of the institutional framework that brings us vaccines and regulates the vaccines. Because of that, there is no reason that healthcare workers would somehow be outside of those concerns. They are presumably scientifically literate. They are perhaps less likely to fall for misinformation that's on the internet. But these are the same people that have worked so hard during the pandemic, have often felt unsupported and unprotected by government agencies and structures. And when you turn around and say, guess what? You get the vaccine first. Well, you may not trust the source as much as maybe you would have prior to the pandemic. I'll also add that most of the pushback is coming from long-term care workers, people working in uh, um, in uh, elderly care, that kind of thing. So these tend to be uh, racialized and immigrant women. These are not people that are um, largely empowered by the system. In fact, they are um, suffering in their communities and in their lives from a lot of uh, injustices. Uh, and because of that, they don't. They may have good reason not to trust the system. Whether they shouldn't trust vaccines is another question. But uh, this idea that somehow they've been put out in uh, and exposed throughout the throughout the pandemic, and then are expected mm -hmm. to stand up first in line for a vaccine, strikes some people as a little bit unreasonable. Tara, I want to bring you in on this as well. What have you made of these stories of hesitancy in the in the healthcare sector? I think they're really unfortunate because we do have research finding that one of the biggest impacts on someone's decision-making is a strong recommendation from their family doctor and from a trusted healthcare provider. Um, people think of it as being like, oh, I did my research on the internet and that's what I decided. But when in, in over and over and over again, research has shown us that the, the biggest influencing factor on whether or not a family 
decides to vaccinate their children with pediatric vaccines is the pediatrician's, you know, the pediatrician's recommendation, uh, which is great because we want people, we want families trusting their healthcare providers. If they don't trust their healthcare provider, then um, they need to find one they do trust. Uh, who hopefully also follows <laughs> proper medical practice. Right. Um, so I think that's concerning. It's not that surprising because having been in the world of vaccine hesitancy for a decade now, I've seen you know nurses against vaccines. Um, I've seen the the various lawsuits that have come up. I believe you had Dorit Reese last week, didn't you? Mm -hmm. um, I did. She's followed very closely. You know, nurses that have or other or other healthcare providers in hospital systems that will refuse to get the flu shot when it's required. Um, and in the various court cases that have come out of that. So it's not surprising. I think it also points to a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there's a problem somewhere in the education training process. I don't think, and I'm not saying that, they're, that nursing schools or medical schools are not, um, you know, they're, they're inadequate in their training, but I think there clearly needs to be some kind of course that addresses uh, preventive behaviors and the science behind the preventive behaviors and the importance of a healthcare provider's own opinion on it. And this is not just true with vaccines. Um, there mm. was, there's a study from, a, oh gosh, a decade or two ago, looking at pediatricians and recommendations for circumcision and whether or not the, the pediatrician had circumcised their children, I believe, or, or whether they were circumcised influenced their recommendation on whether they would recommend. I mean, that's a totally different issue, but the fact is that we're all humans and we have our biases. And I think that healthcare providers need to be aware of the fact of how their biases can affect other people. And I don't feel comfortable getting a vaccine. For, oh, excuse me. I don't feel comfortable getting healthcare from someone who doesn't trust the vaccine. I actually once had a phlebotomist come to take my blood, uh, this was about two or three years ago, and she was wearing a mask. And I knew that the only reason she'd be wearing a mask in flu season is if she didn't get the flu shot. So I asked her why she was wearing the mask. And she said, well, I didn't get the flu shot. And I said, why not? And she said, well, I used to get the flu shot all the time and I never got the flu. And then one year I got the flu shot and I, you know, I got the flu. It just, it was a stupid right. reason. And I said, um, I don't feel comfortable with you taking my blood. Could you please request another phlebotomist to come? And she was stunned. But I wanted to send a strong message that I don't trust a healthcare provider who doesn't trust a medical intervention that has strong evidence behind it. So I think it's concerning. What we do about it is a different question. I think we have to walk a delicate balance between how much we, quote unquote, advertise it. I don't think we should blow it out of proportion because we, I, I haven't seen really good data suggesting that this is a, a large number or any larger than the people who might have not been getting the flu vaccine, for example. So I think we have to be cautious of that, but I don't think we can also just ignore it. I think there needs to be, um, you know, I, I think we need smart public health people and smart people at the actual healthcare provider facilities addressing this issue, it, it, not in dismissive ways. I mean, if they have a, a bunch of healthcare providers that don't want to get the vaccine, okay, why don't they want to get it? Let's have a conversation. Have a Let's conversation. Have a call and what are your concerns? What can we, what more information can we get from you? I mean, it, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be shamed or pushed aside or dismissed. Their concerns need to be listened to and addressed.
let me give you my one data point here um, to bring into this, which is I had a COVID test, not because I was sick, but in, in anticipating some travel. And um, I had I asked the question of the technician, um, what he thought about the vaccine. Um, I did not get IRB approval before I asked him this question, but I asked him the question anyway. And he said, um, he said, no, I'm not going to do it yet. And I said, oh, why? And we had a brief, I mean, he had no time. So it wasn't like an interview. We were just chatting um, and he was doing his work expertly throughout the entire thing. And then basically what he said was he thought it was a little fast. He wanted to see a little, he wanted to see more people vaccinated first. Um, he'd been going to work every day and hadn't gotten sick yet. He felt like he was pretty healthy. He wasn't saying he wasn't going to get it, but just not right now which I thought had not been captured in a lot of the journalism that I had seen. And that that's he, a really common story. That's the most- yes or no. It was yes, but later, and then let me tell you some other things about why. Also, you got to get out of here because the next person is coming in, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts about my, my <laughs> end of one study that I did there, well, but I thought that, it might be interesting to bring it to you. That's a, I think that's probably the most common narrative. And you're right that we're not hearing that. And it's not an unreasonable narrative. My parents, my dad joked, uh, I don't know, months ago about, you know, the microchip and the vaccine. And I, I just kind of, you know, brushed him off and made fun of him for that. But he did then said very seriously, well, I'm not going to get the vaccine until you do. Because he knew, not wow. because he wanted me to be the guinea pig, but because he knew that I followed the data very closely. And that if I felt comfortable enough getting the vaccine, then he would. And indeed, uh, mm. I, he actually got the vaccine the day before I did. But um, King's you know, I told him. People have asked me regularly, Tara, what do you think about the vaccines? And I give them my honest assessment based on the data that we have. Um, I, I don't think it's unreasonable for healthcare providers to have questions about the process and to want those answered. And I suspect, honestly, that a lot of them probably will end up getting it, but they haven't had time to look at that data. I'm <laughs> sitting at my house and it's part of my job to look at the data. They're having to go to work every day and may or may not have the background in reading studies or data that they need to feel comfortable assessing it on their own. Um, so I think it's, it's totally reasonable that they just might not have gotten around to being able to investigate it. Um, and, and there's an effect, Maya, you may know the, the name of this effect, I can't remember what it's called, um, where you get used to, it's like a complacence, where you get used to being around risk and the longer you're around sure. that risk, the less you give um, the less importance you ascribe to that risk. So somebody who is facing the risk every single day of getting COVID is not going to be as anxious about getting COVID as someone who is going to uh, an event for the first time where they're going to be exposed to it. So I'm sure there's some of that complacency playing in. I don't remember the word for that is, but there, you know, that, 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 um, that reduction in risk perception. Mm -hmm. Maya, let me bring you in and, and anything you want to react to what we were just talking about. But also, I'm pleased to see that historian of medicine, Jacob Steer Williams, is watching. And I know he sometimes watches uh, at his dinner hour. And he's asking about this not me first mentality, which we're describing here, and what that might be, how that might be connected to sort of a knowledge, deeper history. You mentioned, Maya, some of the um, you know, the demographics of long-term long care providers, which will have their own histories in their communities of um, 
you know, problems with the way vaccines were used and, and unethical behavior around vaccines. Your thoughts about that, Maya? Well, they're certainly connected. I mean, the, the kinds of polling that, that's been done, people will sometimes name them. Like it is very common for Black Americans to mention Tuskegee when, when they mm. talk about well, whether they'd get a vaccine or not. And Canada has its own stories too, uh, unethical uh, um, un, uh, tr uh, testing of, uh, it was uh, TB, um, un, 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 uh, testing of, of, uh, of uh, vaccines on uh, Inuit population. So we, we have the history in, in many countries around that and people know that. So the, the me not first is a, is a good strategy for doing things. It's a good strategy for a number of reasons. One reason, so I'm thinking about Tara, Tara who's being asked by people, would you get it? And so she's being seen as an expert on that is, one reason is you you need to be able to see the data. You also need to be in a bit of an investigative reporter to find the data. It's been hard to get the information that people want to know. So there's a number of things going on here around the data. First of all, things um, the first information we got about the data came, uh, about the vaccines and their their amazing efficacy came from a press release, not from independent study of. The, uh, of the data. And that was concerning for anyone who's paying attention to it. There were some breathless headlines about, wow, the data shows. But um, if you were looking closely, you could see the data doesn't show, the press release shows. And yeah. then after that, to try to follow that and to try to get who's looking at it independently, what does it mean for something to be um, authorized for emergency use, but but not actually approved. Uh, where does that leave us as health consumers? It was hard to unpack that. And I think even health, uh, even busy healthcare workers uh, are are struggling to figure out what is known or what is be just being projected around that. So those of us that can't get it all together might be the ones who say, "I'll just wait a little bit and see." I mean, we we still any if I wait, I I probably will wait for a while because I'm working from home. I'm not considered high risk. Right. Uh, we still won't have long term data, but we will at least have. A, a larger body of short-term data, and that's going to make people feel more comfortable. And the good news is we don't have enough vaccines for everyone to go first. So if you want to wait a little bit, yes, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, today is a bigger issue right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Jacob following up, he's asking, he's anticipated something we were going to talk about a little bit later, but oh, great. This, this year, <laughs> also the speed and the rush and Operation Warp Speed and even the name of it, um, so many things have been, I mean, medicine and history and disaster is always political, but I mean, to be part of electoral politics is often unexpected. And this year it has been. And so uh, Jacob's asking to, to what extent do you see an, an effect of partisanship and party affiliation around this? Um, let me, Maya, let me ask you that first and then Tara to you, because um, I, my understanding of vaccine hesitancy or or to go step beyond sort of anti-vaccination as a movement um, is it doesn't map, doesn't track well along party affiliation. But this year seems different around so many things in terms of pushing back on public health interventions around COVID. Maya? Well, it didn't map onto party affiliation, but in the years of Trump, it did. At least it did become that in the U.S. So it used to be, you know, there was there was vaccine hesitance and refusal on the left and the right. So there were and there were different, of course, different ideologies pushing 
pushing towards vaccine hesitancy and refusal. One was sort of natural lifestyle on the left. The other one was sort of libertarian values on the right. And uh, I remember early when I started uh, studying vaccine hesitancy, so my work's all been done on pediatric vaccines. I remember a uh, professor of a government writing an op-ed uh, in the New York Times and says, for goodness sake, whatever we do, don't let vaccines get politicized the way, let's say climate change has, because then we're doomed. And of course, that's exactly what happened. I don't think we're doomed, but you you can see now that vaccine hesitancy, it was always tied into other uh, ideological com commitments and worldviews, but now it's been tied even tighter to a sort of, uh, you know, Trump kind of worldview of things. And to, to unpack that will be quite difficult. Tara, have you seen that in your reporting as well? Yes, that, that, and um, I'm actually, I want to back up one moment just to, to address something earlier. Not mm -hmm. only when Maya was talking about not having access to the data, I would say even when we do have access, right now all the data is available on the FDA website. Not everyone knows how to read that data mm -hmm. make sense of it. So that's something to add in. And I also wanted to address uh, Professor Steele, what's his name? Uh, Williams, um, yeah. Williams, excuse me, about um, unethical past trials. I don't even think it needs to be unethical past trials. There have been of vaccine disasters that were not unethical. They were just disasters. One of them was, I mean, the polio cutter incident involved uh, not having standardized um, procedures across different manufacturers. We had, um, you know, the, the rotavirus um, trials that led to having a higher rate of intussusception. We had a, a disastrous RSV trials in the 60s. So we have plenty of examples um, of trials that were done ethically, but still had problems. And we've learned from each of those and applied those lessons to make current trials even safer. But I think it's important to acknowledge that it doesn't have to be unethical to be scary and, and legitimate in terms of, of history. Um, what you said about public health has always been political. Absolutely. The, the idea that people would say, oh, don't politicize public health. Public health, by definition, is political. But like Maya said, and, and as you had perceived, vaccine hesitancy had not been politicized in that way. It was very even across the board. And something really interesting happened with Trump's election. And I think I'd be curious if, if Maya agrees with me on this. We saw a couple things happening at once. Before Trump was elected, we had the proposition in California that followed the measles outbreak from Disneyland outbreak, which made all exemptions that were not medical um, not able to be used. So, so the parents could not get anything other than a medical exemption for their kids to go to school. And what that did was it it forced some parents who may have been more moderate in their hesitancy to become more zealous in their, it, it, it forced them into a corner because now they had no way of even, you know, it, it felt, they felt like it took it out of their hands and it radicalized some people who may not have been as radicalized and it also forced them to refine their arguments. They couldn't go after the science. So instead of going after the science, because they figured out very quickly during the legislative hearings in California that, that attacking vaccine science wouldn't work, they went after the, the, the uh, freedom argument. I have the freedom to decide what happens to my child. And that became the cry on the vaccine hesitancy side, or the vaccine, not hesitancy, the vaccine, anti-vaccine side of, you can't tell me what to do with my child's body. This is my freedom. Well, that happened to coincide with the recent Tea Party movement that was existing in response to Obama, which had just passed, and with the rise of Trump, who was bringing in this, well, my, you know, my neighbor's kid autism thing, um, and the, the whole concept on the right of personal liberty, I can do whatever I want, which we're also seeing with masks. So I, I don't think it's one factor. You have this confluence of factors happening. I have seen people who were the super radical leftist 
organic eating, baby carrying, stereotypical um, liberal become Trump supporters. And vaccine was vaccines were the issue that they became. They, they went from the far left to the mm. far right. And it was because of vaccines. So I do think we're seeing that politicization. I don't think it's an irreversible politicization as I think climate change became because of the fact that it has flipped in that way and because of the different factors that went into it. So I have some hope that it's not, this is not, these are not permanent ley lines, if you will. I, I want to stay with this because, you know, this year again has been, I mean, a lot of what we know, um, I'm going to say this and you're going to correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but I think a lot of what we know about vaccine hesitancy is around vaccines diseases which are uh, childhood diseases and the period of pandemic has passed and, and it may have been longstanding. It's not just a 10 month phenomenon. It's over a longer period of time. So I wonder, you know, everything we've just been talking about, how much do we have to reshape our thinking or, or re-examine what we know based on the fact that we all learned about this coronavirus? Basically, most of us learned about it around 12 months ago at this time. And I wonder if that isn't some sort of way to understand how party affiliation has become part of this discussion, because you that's an easier sort of identity set to rely on. You could just say, well, I don't know what to make of this, but my party leadership tells me it's fine. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go with that. I'm I'm making this way too simple, I think. But I'm, I'm curious about the sort of rush to the vaccine within this within this whole story. Tara, let me start with you on that. It's a, I think it's an interesting and, and complex question because at the same time that you had President Trump not promoting public health interventions that could have dramatically reduced incidence and prevalence in the spread of the disease, you also had him pouring billions of dollars into Operation Warp Speed, which he named himself very poorly, I might add, um, and, and thinking that the vaccine would be our savior. So we, we see inconsistency in his own approach to public health, which is a tip-off to critical thinkers. Oh, wait, so he was saying he didn't like vaccines, now he wants to rush a vaccine. You know, that should have been a tip-off that maybe this person is not using data to drive their decisions and, and their public policy making. Um, the thing that's unfortunate is I think, you know, President Trump had the ability to lead us through this better. I don't, we still would have had a pandemic. It still would have spread through the United States. We still would have had shutdowns. Life still would have been miserable. But it could have been a lot less miserable with a lot fewer deaths if he had decided early on to pick a lane, decide he was going to listen to public health experts and follow what they said to do. And that would have been consistent with promoting the vaccine as well. Um, and I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if people's decision about the COVID vaccine is necessarily aligned politically because of the fact that Trump himself was pushing for the vaccine. So I, I have to wonder how much. Like if we were to do a survey right now, looking at political ideologies or political affiliations and intent to get the vaccine or decision to have already gotten the vaccine, I genuinely do not know what we would find. Because I'm here in Texas, in North Texas, Tarrant County, which is the county I live in, until the 2018 midterms was the last remaining urban county in the country that was going red. Uh, we went blue in 2018. Um, and when I went to get my vaccine, I went to a very conservative town that you and I are very familiar with. Um, and I went to their convention center and I, it, everybody else there, they were predominantly white people in their 70s and 80s. I guarantee you that the majority of the people around me voted for Trump, but they were in line for the vaccine. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what we would find now if we looked at that. I think it's the mixed messages we've gotten from Trump make it really hard to interpret how those. And in a way, 
that's kind of good. <laughs> in this it, it suggests that it, there's not this solidified, um, I mean, it's not good that he was kind of all over the place, but it's good that we have not, he did not create this deeply etched line in which people fell that, that was anti-vaccine. Maya, let me bring you in on that. Any part of that you want to you want to comment on, and and this, I'm particularly interested in the sort of what you make of the speed of the year, and 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 how to how well that will allow us to use this experience as a comparative to other historical examples. Well, it, it's it it highlights what's unique about COVID vaccines compared to let's say you're comparing it to vaccine hesitancy around other. Uh, vaccines. First of all, we've never started, we've never really talked about vaccine hesitancy prior to a vaccine existing. Uh, second, most of the vaccines that we really pay attention to around vaccine hesitancy have to do with uh, uh, pediatric vaccines, which are uh, different for one, because they are given to children. So that elicits a certain kind of emotional reaction. Um, and also, um, um, they've always been tied up with mandates. So there are very few adult uh, vaccines that are are mandated other than, let's say, influenza vaccine for healthcare workers. But uh, to uh, you, if you try to think about which ones have been widely mandated for adult use, um, it's been a long time since we've had that. So those are some unique things. Um, it is difficult to sort of discern uh, how we should think about it. Um, so I think you're probably right that people are going to be looking to sort of their groups and their connections to see what other people think. But we actually do that for almost all things. There's mm -hmm. studies of this in social psychology. That, uh, the term for it is um, cultural cognition. And in mm -hmm. fact, as much as we like to think that we think for ourselves and we're independent thinkers, we do a lot of what our peers are doing because it's a way to fit in with our peers. And going against your peer group uh, is damaging in, in many ways. So we do, uh, we've got all kinds of ways to justify certain decisions because there's less um, there's less um, collateral if, to just go go with the with your group. Um, as for why uh, Tara is seeing all these kinds of unusual cases of let's say uh, Trump supporters, uh, I think you're right that the, we, there's mixed messages about the uh, COVID vaccine coming even from. Uh, coming even from the White House, but also there's the different ways that people are going to incorporate all of the risks and the associations that they make. I mean, one reason that people are pinning such high hopes on this vaccine is because there's been such rampant political failure to contain the virus and to minimize harms. There are some countries that are far less resourced than U.S. or Canada that did quite well just using the plain old public health measures that we know work test, trace, isolate, right. uh, uh, you know, um, small quarantining, not not what we, in Canada, we, we've got a pension for kind of um, mediocre lockdowns that don't seem to do anything except frustrate people. But there's been there. There are ways that this could have been this, this could have done gone differently. And uh, this this sort of why that happens, like I think there's there's room for a lot of political analysis for why this happened in the U.S. Why did you have a president that didn't want to do public health at all, but still wanted to get this vaccine going? I think it was, you know, it it, it was a sort of a global race against China. Who's going to be first? So there was uh, bravado involved. Um, there was, uh, of course, when you spend money to make a uh, new technology, you make, uh, you make money too. So it was seen as a business uh, intervention rather than a public health intervention. So there were, there were all those reasons. And because of that, we've got all kinds of ways of thinking about, uh, about this vaccine that is not going to divide as easily on, on party lines.
I have a theory about this, um, which is not very well developed, but I'll share it with you anyway, which, which is that um, I'm thinking about Trump here, that um, Trump is consistent in his um, uh, support for and championing for American corporations. Well, at least ones he, he likes, but pharmaceutical sector. And so, and, and the opposite when it comes to anything that has to do with the social safety net or the social contract. So he found himself, and he's not alone. So you think about Trump and others and governors and many governors, many too many governors who jumped on board with him and legislators as well, as we've heard all day um, in floor debate, that found themselves in a situation where they at one and the same time wanted to criticize the health system or even make it hobble the health system in the United States. And I think this is also true in Brazil and, uh, and other countries as well, unfortunately. Um, but they wanted to simultaneously champion the private sector so they ended up with this very, the, it mixed messages and also mixed strategies, which is to say, well, let's just not support public health, but let, let's do support vaccine manufacture as if somehow in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> you can separate these out right? and then say, well, aren't we glad that the pharmaceutical companies saved us? And yeah, we know that these healthcare workers have to deliver the vaccine. Oh, you mean they can't because they, oh, it's more complicated than that. And you can see almost him kind of working this out in October when it hadn't arrived yet and he didn't know who to blame. Okay, so that's not even a theory. That's just a set of ideas <laughs> I threw out there. But I don't know what you what you make of that. I, I want to kind of, um, when you asked earlier, I'm, I'm trying to think of what it was that made me think of this. But when you were talking about Oh, oh, it was Maya talking about the differences between adult vaccines and child vaccines. Another thing that we have to consider are cognitive biases that play into our, our beliefs and perceptions of risk. One of the challenges with vaccine hesitancy with pediatric vaccines is that we don't see diphtheria around us. We don't see polio around us. We don't see, you know, all these diseases that we're vaccinating against, people don't see them. So it's hard for them to feel the urgency of fear related to that disease. COVID is the opposite. It's all around us. Everybody knows someone who's in the hospital with COVID or, or knows someone who knows someone who died of COVID. And that's going to affect how we assess risks and benefits. Because one of the things that we want with our vaccines, we want an extremely good safety record. But as the risk of harm of not getting an intervention goes up, our tolerance for safety goes down. So we're, we're willing to take on more risks to choose a medical intervention that could protect us if the alternative is very high risk. That plays into all of this at the same time. And I think that is what makes the downplaying of the seriousness of this disease that is also occurred alongside a lot of this dangerous as well, because that's part of those mixed messages. And I think that also plays into why we saw better responses in a lot of other countries that are much less resourced, as Maya said, they are not, Americans are kind of used to technology will save us, right? We're used to going to the store and buying the solution to what happens. You can't do that in Vietnam, which is one of the countries that has been absolutely phenomenal in their response. Vietnam is one of the best countries that we you know, have out there. I've been to that country twice and love it. And I can tell you, you can't go buy your way out of things there. Um, well, at least not officially, <laughs> but um, those countries also have more recent memory of outbreaks. So they have more recent understanding viscerally, oh, like, like China, for example, had SARS. They had no problem all putting on their masks because they had been there, done that. Masks were culturally embedded in their response to a health threat. 
Whereas in the United States, we haven't faced a health threat like this before. And so we were all kind of playing catch up. I think that's why we saw such great responses in lower resource countries. They couldn't put their hopes on a vaccine coming fast. They know they're not going to be getting the vaccine as fast as everybody else, but they do know what they can do to reduce risk because they've been doing it in more recent years. And I think all of that you're looking at this from a global perspective, we can't not think about those things and how that plays into how different people assess risk and benefit. Absolutely fascinating point. And Maya, maybe just bring us the Canadian perspective, because here you have a country that's very much champions uh, private enterprise, but also has, I would think you would argue, anybody would argue a stronger social safety net than the United States does. <laughs> that takes much. Yeah. Uh, yes, we have a stronger social safety net, but we also have, you know, a lot of those the sort of um, um, uh, influences uh, towards sort of uh, buying our way to do things. Uh, so that's why I think we're kind of, you see us, we are not doing great, but we're not doing terribly either. We could have done more in terms of public health. Uh, there was a uh, we 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 have not had great leadership at the provincial level. We do it while well, you do it by most things at the state. We do thing we do things at the uh, at the provincial level. Certainly, our more conservative conservative provincial governments have been less willing to do measures like uh, um, uh, mandates or lockdowns or things like that, and, and we are suffering for it. Uh, I just wanted to add that this is this kind of discussion about trying to fix things with technology, like a, mm -hmm. let's say a, a single disease eradication versus basic public health infrastructure and, and improvement. That's kind of an old debate within mm -hmm. global health and international development about which one should win. And it's often the sort of um, uh, Western uh, philanthro-capitalist drive to get that technology and fix the thing while um, while the local uh, the, the local experts are usually the ones saying no, we need infrastructure. We need to spend not on a new vaccine, but rather on things like basic healthcare accessibility, uh, water, and things like that. So this More is roads to get the vaccines we have there. Right. This right. is. This is like a weird uh, phenomena of the West that we think that we can use technology to jump in and, and fix things when, you know, we've got a lot of evidence to say that uh, in something at the scale of a pandemic, it doesn't work, even within our borders. We haven't even talked about the global vaccination movement, which is not looking very good right now. And you see that even in the recommendations, you see restaurants saying, oh, well, we're really safe. We disinfect everything. Well, it's not that you know, buying all of the best disinfectants in the world is not going to change the fact that people breathing in your facility is the biggest risk. I think there's a desire like, you know, to use objects and technology, like Maya said, to get out of this pandemic rather than accepting that we might have to do the hard things um, to get out of it. And a lot of countries that are used to having to do the hard things all along uh, are coping better with it. And I think they're coping with it better not only politically and socially, but personally, I think in terms of personal resilience. Um, I think that plays a role as well. We're going to have to absolutely have global comparative 
studies of this. I mean, I know they've already started and they're going to have to dig into into these kind of layers. Philanthropic capitalist is not a term. I know the concept, but I had never heard that term used. And it's interesting because it ties back to conversation I had with Peter Hotez last week. And he was talking about that it's been easier for him at various points in his career to get research funding to try to eradicate diseases in so-called um, poor, poor, they are poor. They're both poor and they're so-called poor and they're treated as you know endemically poor parts of the world. Um, it's been easier to get support for that than to, to fight diseases of poverty and inequality in the United States, which I yeah. think is, is sort of riffing off of what you were talking about there a second ago, Maya, that it, it that if we, when we divide this up into a discussion about, well, are we going to take the techno fix or the public health fix? Um, if you focus completely on the techno fix, you may never get to the harder conversations around, so, around social inequality. And of course, bring it back to Trump and to the Republican Party in general, and not just the Republican Party, but mostly them. They don't want to have that conversation. In fact, to have that conversation this year has been totally anathema. And so, Jesus. no, that's fine. Um, I said something correct. You should have answered. They would have said. I often think of um, I, I as a journalist. I can't not perceive the world and stories. Everything is narrative to me, and I think we we understand our world through narrative. A lot of times, when I talk about vaccine hesitancy, I talk about how we learn through stories, and that's why we have to tell stories to help people understand what they do and don't want to do in terms of health behaviors. I see this as sort of the ancient tortoise and the hare. I mean, this this is. You know, the U.S. wants to be the hare jumping ahead and then, um, you know, taking rest when they feel like it. And then the tortoise is the, the public health thing measures just sort of plodding along what's going to make it in the end. I, I think a lot of this taps into some deep narratives that are sort of programmed into us in terms of our, our values and our approach to living in general. Those narratives are being challenged every single day. Yeah. <laughs> right now. I, I've been enjoying this conversation so much that I completely lost track of time and forgot to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about <laughs> vaccine hesitancy um, with Tara Haley and Maya Goldenberg. Can I, um, we are almost up on time, but can I get, can we stay 10 more minutes? Would that be okay for both of you me. to talk a little bit more? Okay. Cause we haven't talked about uh, conspiracy theories yet. Um, oh, we yeah. kind of been talking around that, but let's jump into that aspect of this as well. I've remarked before about this on COVID calls. I think I want to say it again that um, conspiracy and disinformation in the world that I'm in in disaster research has always been treated as kind of interesting, but an epiphenomena. If there were people who didn't believe that the World Trade Towers fell, or if they believed that it was an inside job, that that's always going to be a feature of a free society, and people can believe that, and that's fine. But never treated as a more central um, realm of sense making or even of electoral politics. Just has never been treated that way. So I guess I want to ask you about this year with vaccines in that regard, and I guess maybe about vaccines more generally. Do you see changes right now in the way that science communicators are dealing with what seems to be a constant feature now? Um, I'm speaking about the United States of so our polity, which is disinformation, misinformation, and conspiracy, which are separate but often intertangled. Tara, to you first on that one. Um, I, I'm glad that you just distinguished between those three things. I think it's really important people understand the difference between misinformation, which is inaccurate information devoid of intention, disinformation, which is an intentional attempt to, to mislead people, and maybe for ideological reasons or for financial reasons or, or for political reasons, 
and conspiracy theory, which has been with us since the beginning of time and will never go away and always increases during times of stress and disaster because it provides answers. It's, it's much better than uncertainty. And whenever we're in a disaster, there's a lot of uncertainty. So seeking answers in a neat little conspiracy theory that sort of seems to answer everything, it satisfies our need for answers and certainty and feeling comfort and safety. And um, I, I think all of those are, are interrelated. Uh, vaccines have had conspiracy theories about them since literally the first vaccine, when um, smallpox vaccine was made with cowpox and people thought it was going to turn them into cows, which is just so utterly ridiculous. But people believed it. Not, I don't know how many, probably not very many, but they've always been there. And I don't think that what's happened during COVID is going to dramatically change the trajectory of the influence of conspiracy theories when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. I do think we have a bigger issue to deal with beyond vaccines, looking at how are we going to continue disseminating information going forward when it comes to any kind of public health emergency or any other kind of issue of national, um, um, you know, national or global, <laughs> to be really ridiculous. What happens if there really is a zombie apocalypse? What if aliens really do land? We clearly don't have our ducks in a row <laughs> for addressing those things. Um, you know, we... The, the way in which our information sources have become siloed and the tyranny of the algorithm or even those who want to try to find information out there outside their bubble, the algorithm actively works against them in trying to find that information. I think those are far bigger issues that we need to worry about that go beyond just whether or not conspiracy theories are going to continue playing a role, because they will, they always have. I think those are more dangerous because those those are more insidious in preventing even the people who want to remain open-minded and critically thinking and trying to assess this information. It's getting harder for those people to get accurate information. And then you throw into that the, the, the politically or financially or ideologically motivated disinformation that's out there. I, I see that whole monster ball of, of awfulness being a bigger issue and, and certainly going well beyond vaccines. Maya, I want to ask you about this too, and just tie it back for a second to my technician story that I told earlier, because I had an assumption built into even the way I told that story, which is that he will have access over the coming months to clear science-based communication about the efficacy of the vaccine. But I probably I should have asked him where he gets his news. He, he may not have it. <laughs> Um, I don't really have anything to add to, to what Tara did. I think, um, I think the sort of... Um, echo chambers that have been created by our algorithms and our internet are are, are deeply troubling. And uh, I'd be looking for more regulation around uh, the way uh, tech companies do this uh, and uh, um, shape their, our news cycles. Maya, what are some of the strategies um, based on your research that um, people in the health sector, science communicators have employed or do employ when there clearly is not uptake of their message or when there's significant public um, distrust of their message. I, I, that's the thing I'm going to be looking for this year. I mean, is it is it as simple as having a new administration in the United States or a new government in the UK? Or is there something else? There are other strategies that have to go into that to rebuild trust. Well, in my work, I, I try to I try to get a, a sense of what it is that is driving mistrust around vaccines. So, first thing I did was reject that this was a side of a science problem. I thought of it thought of it as a larger as a larger trust problem, and that that speaks to the way it is that people interact with scientific information. It is not that the literate people 
uh, trust to the vaccines and the scientifically illiterate people do not. Instead, it seems to speak more to like broader socioeconomic conditions and the relationships people have to the various institutions that bring vaccines to us from the research to the regulation to the distribution all 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 those things that we sometimes call the system as as imprecise as that as that word is and looking at um looking at uh the qualitative research on um vaccine hesitant parents and there is a lot so in my own work i wondered why it was that sometimes um people uh, sometimes vaccine hesitant and refusing parents are caricatured um in media reports as like those people, they're so stupid and things like that. When you actually read the uh, empirical research, because there is quite a lot of it, they are very, for the most part, they are not hateful. They are well-intended. They uh, want to do what is best for their child and they don't know exactly how to do that. So there's mm -hmm. something about the information being put in front of them and the people talking to them that is that is sending them uh, mixed messages. And when people are asked, and the best thing to do is ask them, what it is, what is it about vaccines that make you hesitant? They kind of give the same answers. One is a deep discomfort around uh, industry influence on health research. They could not be clearer about not liking that relationship. So when if you really, if it's really up to me how to build trust, you would create more separation between pharmaceutical funding and uh, academic health research. We've been, you know, this has been a long-standing problem that largely gets ignored by people high up in academic medicine and in uh, politics because they benefit from this relationship. It is, uh, it is, um, it is not working. Vaccine hesitancy is a demonstration of how much that is not working. The second one is to pay attention to uh, to um, health injustices and medical racism because it is deep and uh, people of color and racialized communities really don't under don't trust public health and medicine. And those feelings are deep and that um, continues to impact their own quality of health and also impacts their ability to uh, access interventions like what is hopefully a safe and effective vaccine. So those are the two um, structural issues that need to be um, that need to be fixed. On a much smaller level, we need to have better conversations between people and their healthcare providers. A lot of health vaccine hesitancy has been known to arise when here's a very common scenario. Uh, a new mother goes to their healthcare provider with questions about vaccines and she gets shut down and made to feel stupid or uncaring for even asking questions. And that's work. Scream that as a mantra, shaming in public health doesn't work. Shaming doesn't work over and over. There's so many issues that apply to. This narrative gets repeated again and again. I went mm. to my doctor, I got shut down, and then I went online. And there they find the support that they there need. There they found it. And, yeah. you know, doctors are busy. They do not get the compensation that they want for these long, long, long conversations. But And, and they should. Um, but it is uh, these conversations are so important. Women have a long history of feeling shut down and not listened to in healthcare. And you put a new mother with her baby who maybe didn't have the best experience uh, giving birth if they are birth mothers, and you do this to them, you, you better believe there's going to be a reaction. So better conversations, less shaming, um, clear messaging, of course, and like look at look at the structural problems that are creating these persistent problems that we can't seem to get past because we're unwilling to look at those structural problems. I, it, Maya has already said this, but it bears repeating that the the distrust that 
you see in a lot of um, racial and ethnic communities uh, is very justified. Like we can give you a long list of reasons. That is also true of the distrust of moms. We often think of it as being moms who are anti-vaccine or moms who are vaccine hesitant. And there's, it's not an accident that these are, that at least prior to uh, Trump's election, a lot of correlations existed between I, I do exclusive breastfeeding, I co-sleep with my baby, I had a natural birth, all of these natural ideas, because those all fed into a distrust of the mother-baby complex and the way in which maternal care is delivered and the way in which maternal care is completely severed from pediatric care. Uh, Allison Stuby is a researcher in North Carolina who's done phenomenal work trying to promote the idea that we need to treat the dyad. We need to treat the mother and the child together because uh, women have not been listened to. Women, you know, look at PCOS is this disease that um, is really painful and the average time to diagnosis is something like eight years because people dismiss it as, oh no, that's not a real disease or oh no, that's not, you're not really feeling that pain. So we have those structural problems with women as well and women tend to be the, the decision makers when it comes to a lot of vaccines, even within a family, like the husband will do what the woman does. His wife handles a lot of the health stuff. Um, and we can't ignore the fact that these people who have these concerns, they're not stupid, they're intelligent. A lot of them are very educated. In fact, they're extremely educated because they're afraid of getting hurt by the system because they have been hurt by the system. Mm. And like Maya said, if we don't address the fact that you know, a woman feels disempowered when giving birth or, or that she's had this bad experience or that it took her nine years to get a diagnosis for a, fem a female related issue by the doctor, well, of course she's gonna have some distrust and that's not unreasonable. So that's all, I mean, that's kind of a different issue than a lot of what we've been talking about, but it's tangential in all of this. It's like a giant bowl of spaghetti, right? You can't touch one strand of the spaghetti without interacting with all the others. But I, I really appreciate that from both of you because like so many things with this disaster, every time we try to disentangle one part of it and somehow treat it analytically, we, we really, we, I think we make mistakes um, and just even, you know, treating the issue of trust as something that you can just lay into one segment of the population. I mean, you just both gave about five different reasons that we should also be looking um, to understand hesitancy in terms of the health system more broadly, but also sexism within the health system and the experience of mothers. I mean, um, all of those things. And again, what do we need for that? We need more public health research. We need more money to fund great journalism and science investigative journalism Ooh, more transparency in our government i mean if you want people to trust the fda get rid of the revolving door with the fda well, and I, as, as i was as you were both giving your reasons there i was thinking again about the pressures of this pandemic year um you know the role of the the imprint of the pharmaceutical industry and in research the enormous amount of preprints and and research that's come out this year and i don't know who's started to take stock yet of the degree to which that's been funded by the pharmaceutical industry. I imagine it's not small. And then the, the ongoing need to develop relationships between practitioners and, and patients and have those, pa those relationships be meaningful and resilient at a time in which people have had to learn how to either go without care or go with telehealth and figure out how to renegotiate that. We have to learn that all in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we're up on time. I want to get one last quick question in for both of you because this will help me um, and others who are listening. What would, to what what are you watching for in the months ahead? We started with some numbers, talked about that um, that confidence from sixty percent or so to seventy percent or so in the vaccine, um, which you both um, sort of took the wheels off of uh, a, a simplistic reading of those numbers, helpfully. But what kinds of measures? 
are you looking for in the next few months to have some confidence that, um, and again, I'm sort of thinking about the United States, but maybe Canada as well, um, that we're going to make some real impact with the vaccine? Is it number of doses that are delivered? Is it the infection rate itself? Is it the death rate? Is it more qualitative, like kinds of stories that you'll start seeing in the news media? What will you be watching for to see that the vaccine and vaccination is actually making a difference in this pandemic? Maya, I want to start with you on that, and then Tara, I'm going to give you the last word on that. Um, is it unfair if I say I want all of those things? Because I <laughs> No, you can have all of those things. <laughs> complex issue, and it's not going to be answered just by the doses, though that helps, of course. Mm -hmm. um, we also need to know if it actually works to uh, bring down the rate of infection. We still don't know if vaccines um, keep us from shedding the virus and uh, and uh, therefore spreading it to other people. So uh, what else is going to be put in place? We know that these vaccines are not the magic bullet that we'd hoped for, that we're still going to be masking, we're still going to need some public health measures for a while. So um, how is the public going to respond to that? How are they going to square that with um, what was initially um, a promise for this kind of magic bullet? So how's, how's that all going to work? Uh, I'll be watching for all of those things. Tara, same question. Um, well, the I guess the big giant number that matters more than anything else at the end of the day is the r naught, the reproduction number that's going to determine when this uh, disease will slow down. The r naught is as many of your listeners probably already know, it's, you know, how many people does the average person who gets infected pass it on? And it's, it's not like I'm going to infect 1.3 people. It's more like this person infected 30 people and these 30 people only infected five people. Um, so that number will play a big role. That's That number was derived largely from the, the existence of vaccines in the first place. Not not exclusively, but it's, it's been a, a part of that. Test positivity will make a difference. And I I want to see a drop in test positivity across the country, um, the, the test positivity rate, which includes the idea that we're testing enough people and the idea that we're having a lower prevalence going on. But I also want to see infrastructure improvements in vaccine delivery. We knew that this was going to be a monumental in, uh, logistical task, unlike anything that's ever been seen in human history or US history, both. Um, well, that sounded funny. Obviously, that's redundant, but <laughs> you know, this is a massive, massive, massive enterprise to get this vaccine out to everybody. And I knew that it would be slow and halting at first, but I, I think we're at the point now we're a month in almost, and we should we should be seeing more vaccines getting to more people. So I want to see demand in the vaccine dropping, which is not counterintuitive. But what I mean is if the demand starts to drop, that means people are getting it, more people are getting it in a sense. Um, and then we can worry down the line about vaccine hesitancy. And then finally, what I really want to see more than anything else from the new administration coming in is a massive investment in a public health awareness and education and communication campaign. I want to see a coordinated effort at getting accurate information out that is consistent across the board and places people can confidently go to get information to answer their questions. And I want to see commercials on TV with famous people getting the vaccine. I, I want to see you know, everything possible that's raising awareness and confidence in what the science is showing us and, and promoting public health measures, not just the vaccine, but even, you know, I want to see, I don't know who the latest basketball star is. I, you know, I want to see <laughs> some, you know, famous people wearing masks. I want to see that. We haven't seen that investment. And I think that's really important, mm -hmm. the, the hearts and mind part of all of this. 
want to remind people you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 5 o'clock. I'll be talking to Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey about the pandemic and um, his leadership in the state and also the politics of the pandemic this year. So please do join me for that. And I want to thank my guests today, Tara Haley and Maya Goldenberg, for a really lively, great discussion about vaccination and vaccine hesitancy. Thanks a million for your time today. Thank you. Thanks. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.